welcome back to the Laudable Pursuit Podcast, contemplative and transformative education for those seeking Masonic light. I'm Nate Warren. I'm Jason Marshall. And I'm Matt Anthony. Before we get started tonight, um, I'd like to acknowledge some very generous donations. One from Brother Bob Warren, who's my grandfather in uh, South Texas, and David Tennyson from Guthrie. Uh, We thank you so much. Um, Your donations are appreciated. They have uh, helped us to procure some much-needed equipment. Hopefully everybody can tell a a difference in some of our sound levels and things like that. So every little bit helps, and we will surely and slowly get on our way. Speaking of which, we've been gone for several weeks because this is actually our fourth attempt to record this episode. We at first had some technical difficulties, then we had tornadoes roll through Oklahoma, and then my uh, two dogs decided to get into a massive fight. But we are trying to persevere here, and uh, hopefully this will be a good episode. Tonight, guys, I'd like to talk about contemplation, and more specifically, the attainment of wisdom through contemplation. In Oklahoma, our opening charge uh, begins by addressing this very thing. It says, The ways of virtue are beautiful. Knowledge is attained by degrees. Wisdom dwells in contemplation. There we must seek her. The charge, you know, it begins talking about the ways of virtue are beautiful. And, you know, in our studies and our practice, what made me think of immediately was the four cardinal virtues, you know, temperance, prudence, fortitude, and justice. So with these virtues, um, I mean, they're obviously our, uh, I don't know, our our markers for our path. There are our boundaries, there are guides. Can you think of ways that, that these four cardinal virtues have shaped your journey through masonry or, or maybe even guided your path to wisdom? Part of masonry is about becoming a well-rounded, well-developed man. And the four virtues of temperance, prudence, fortitude, and justice are all manly virtues as well. I mean, you know, temperance, self-restraint is about controlling one's own actions, emotions, and whatnot. Prudence, self-judgment, that you don't uh, undertake harmful endeavors, that you uh, weigh options and actions before undertaking them. And then fortitude, you know, there's ups and downs of life in everyone's life. And then justice about, you know, as it says in the seventh degree Scottish right is to, you know, heal dissensions and differences and to restore peace. And really, these four virtues, if we practice them, those are the outward manifestations of the inner work that we undertake. And that whole path, that whole path of the inner work, all of the inner work, it's, it's for one goal, right? To know thyself. And I think that's like the ultimate form of knowledge you could ever attain. Uh, or maybe not. Maybe it's a lifelong pursuit and you'll never actually get there. But that's the goal, right? Um, is to know thyself. And what better way to know yourself than to have your actions and thoughts uh, shaped by these these guiding virtues. Um, I think it's real important, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind when we talk about justice is I think society and a lot of people uh, mix up justice and retribution. And there's actually a, a book from a guy named Owen Shea. hope I didn't mess that up. I think he's in Hawaii now, but he was a member of Norman Lodge before I joined. And he actually talks about it a little bit um, where justice is an equal system applied fairly and equally to all. And that's not what a lot of people think justice is now. Justice in most people's minds are you got to pay for this thing, right? You have to be punished for this act that you did. So if we can, justice is real important to me, man. If you can, if you could take something that's so terrible to you and weigh it equally and give somebody an equal chance to defend themselves and put aside your personal feelings about that act, then I, th- I think that can tell you a whole lot about yourself or it can teach you a whole lot. It can, can open you to other perspectives and even grant you some, some inroads to empathy. Well, in order to be a judge in any kind of situation, 
I mean, as you said, you have to be you know, impartial, removed from the situation, not bring grim prejudice and preconceived notions to it. And that that's a hefty goal. And I mean, that, that's a lot of work to attain that, that, you know, I think naturally in any situation we want to bring in our own, own experiences and baggage and be able to take a step away and look at it impartially. That's huge. And, you know, where we, a lot of times what we think of somebody who's wise, you know, we ask them to judge, you know, conflicts and, you know, situations in our life, you know, what should we do? What should we not do? Because they manifest that justice, that impartiality, that wise, you know, sort of that wise character. When there's another aspect too, and that's to, to flip it inwardly, right? If you can hear something about yourself and think about what someone's saying about you as an outsider uh, from their approach. I mean, that can be pretty revealing too, where you can actually for a second set yourself aside and try to take on somebody's point of view and realize, okay, yeah, I messed up. Whereas you might not realize that if you, if you don't examine it in that way. So you can gain all kinds of knowledge or wisdom actually. Part of justice also means that being impartial or, removed even if you don't disagree with even if you disagree with the situation and you know a little off topic maybe that somebody posted something on Facebook about the lost art of discourse that everybody thinks we have to win that you know in politics we have my side and a lot of people can't look beyond that and so I think a lot of these virtues come into play there where you know can you be prudent can you look at something objectively without rushing to judgment you know fortitude just because maybe you're in a down point of your life are you going to project that onto others and other areas of life uh, are you going to hold yourself above others you know in masonry we say that we all meet on the level well as a society do you think somebody's somebody or a class is below you so justice again you know the equal playing field the equal dealing you know dealing squarely on the level the masonic you know saying all applies yeah, and I think justice is, is really, it's one of those, to me, it's a nuance. I mean, temperance and prudence, fortitude, those all seem very straightforward and obvious, but it's, justice seems like the one where you could really kind of, depending on your definition of it, wander around an issue, you know what I mean? Well, especially in justice, there's a lot of situations where you're called upon to be a judge or arbitrator in a situation, and part of being a man or a mason is being comfortable with conflict, comfortable with yourself to make a decision. Maybe whenever you're not even going to make everybody happy that, you know, you might have to upset a friend because he's in the wrong or whatever decision you make, you're going to make both parties upset. So moving on to the next part of the charge uh, where it talks about knowledge is attained by degrees um, again, because the ultimate goal of this episode is is to examine uh, the gleaning of wisdom through contemplation. So first we're going to talk about knowledge, and then later we'll differentiate between knowledge and wisdom. And actually, Jason Eddy wrote a pretty good little paper. It's on our website, and um, I'm going to read a little bit of it uh, just because I think it lays a pretty good basis for the conversation we're about to have. So Jason says that, as an entered apprentice, we are offered our first glimpse at the light of masonry. All five of our senses are bombarded by an initiatic experience that our profane life has left us ill-equipped to comprehend. Strange words, ancient rituals, character tests, after which, under the jurisdiction of the Grand Lodge of Ohio, we are offered what appears to be an explanation of everything that has just occurred. As an entered apprentice sits and listens to the lecture in charge of the degree, he will either consciously or unconsciously decide whether or not he is going to seek to learn more. This gives us a glimpse at the first phase in development, knowledge. The zealous entered apprentice soon finds himself studying the lecture, charge, and degree work that he has experienced. Eventually, he finds himself able to recite with precision the entire lecture, the entire charge, and explain in detail the steps required to confer the degree that he has now had the honor of experiencing. 
he has now achieved the first level, knowledge. As his journey continues, he finds himself, as a fellow craft, being encouraged to study the seven liberal arts and sciences. Now faced with yet another lecture in charge filled with unfamiliar words that carry with them an air of importance. He applies the same zeal to this lecture in charge and soon finds himself with the ability to confer with exceptional skill this degree as well. He has now achieved, or rather maintained, the first level, knowledge. And finally, that night is upon him, the night that he has been anticipating since he signed his name to the petition for degrees. He is raised to the sublime degree. He is finally in possession of the secrets of masonry. Not wanting to break the streak, he soon becomes proficient in the master mason degree. He has risen in both honor and esteem within the lodge. Lauded as a Masonic scholar, he is called upon any time a degree is conferred due to his uncanny ability to deliver each with such precision that the others in the lodge or even masonry at large can only aspire to. At last, he has arrived at the first level, knowledge. Out of those who put forth the effort to learn the lectures, charges, and degree work, there will be a small group of men who seek to not only know the work, but to understand the work. They are in the truest sense speculative masons. They will seek out ancient texts, symbolic interpretations, and even converse with more knowledgeable brothers in an effort to really understand what it all means. Many of these men then take it upon themselves to share this light with the craft. They write papers, books, articles, and are often found speaking to not only their own lodge, but to any other lodge seeking Masonic scholars. These men have taken the knowledge that they were gifted with and done the work required to understand the meaning behind it. They have arrived at the second level, intelligence. These men can not only identify each and every symbol, allegory, and illusion within the degrees, but can most likely speak to the symbolic meanings, history, and intention of our Masonic forefathers who put them there. At last, we might arrive at the third level of our Masonic journey, wisdom. These men have spent years laboring in the quarries of Freemasonry to find that which was lost. What they find, I cannot say, because I have yet to find it. What can be said is that at a very minimum, these men have not only learned the lessons of Freemasonry, but have put them into practice. That is the journey, brethren. In keeping with the number three, which resides in nearly every corner of the mysterious temple, we find that the progression of our Masonic status is from operative to speculative to operative. A man enters the West Gate as a man who lives his life each and every day without regard for the secrets behind the veil. He is operative in that he resides only in the terrestrial world. As he labors, he finds himself upon that level of time that leads to speculation. He becomes a seeker of light. Alas, he arrives at the inner chamber and finds that he must now take what he has learned and apply it, not only in the terrestrial, but in the spiritual realm of this existence. He now applies that which he has discovered above to that which he has discovered below. He has achieved the third level, wisdom. Well, obviously, Brother Eddie is talking about the Masonic journey through the uh, degrees and also applying those on the inner journey. I thought that it was interesting that as you read it, I had a thought that did not come to me uh, when I had read the paper originally, and that is kind of the parallel journey to the Hindu tradition, where in you know traditional India and uh, the Hindu religion, life is divided up into two halves, and then each half is divided up into two parts as well. So, you know, the first quarter, if you will, is student learning. And then the second part is that of householder, where you get married, you have a house, you have children, that it's your duty to have children because your ancestors had children, it's honoring them. 
And then the third part is with a term going into the forest. And that is where you've already had your children, you've been married, you know, you've had your business life or whatever, but now you undertake the paths of yoga. And so you go find a guru, you learn, and then the fourth path is that of, you know, the wandering saint. If, you know, you maybe reach that ultimate level is to become a, what uh, it's a wandering, it's termed a wandering saint because you're basically homeless, you're destitute, but you're living you know, the, the Vedas, the, you're living the enlightened, you're an enlightened being. And, um, and it's interesting because, you know, everybody has their own capacity for learning and, you know, wisdom. Cause you know, when somebody goes, when, when they reach the going into the fourth stage, somebody might go to a guru and they say, okay, you know, read the Vedas and, you know, continue on with your life and then they might meet somebody who really they see potential in and they really start taking that path seriously and you know in in the west we always think of yoga as stretching exercises but it's actually much more than that much more intense in fact there's four paths of yoga you have uh, jhana yoga which is the path of knowledge wisdom introspection um involves exploring our nature and being then you have bhakti yoga which is devotion emotion love compassion compassion karma yoga your actions and then raja yoga which is basically meditation but most of us think of meditation in the west and while these are the four paths they're not even those even those aren't even mutually exclusive because each of them have their own emphasis that maybe works on a portion of your own inner being that needs to be further refined just like in masonry we have different degrees but the different lessons of the degrees different emphasis on the degrees that work on different aspects of our being it's interesting to me um and maybe i'm just stupid but i think a lot of people probably think that wisdom and knowledge are the same thing the more knowledge you have you'll inherently be wise and and that's true to a point i guess but our charge specifically states and i agree with it that wisdom dwells in contemplation so i guess the catalyst between knowledge and wisdom would be that of contemplation and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about tonight. Um, What is contemplation? Well, contemplation is basically your inner personal work. I mean, there's lots of contemplative practice, such as silent sitting, mindfulness, uh, focusing on symbolism, objects, ritual, um, you know, discursive meditations, prayer, prayer, you know, in the Kabbalistic tradition, the the work is really when you start undertaking some of the, the lessons and teachings of the Kabbalah, uh, at least in the initial stages, it's forming your kli, which is the spiritual vessel that, you know, accepts or holds the divine energy. So just going back, you know, to the, the Hindu tradition, you know, the student, you're learning knowledge, 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 but you're really, you know, shaping your inner being and in masonry, what we would call your, your ashlar. You know, on the ashlar, when we're shaping the ashlar, you know, we're knocking off the rough corners, we're learning these lessons, and through the application, you know, the ashlar becomes more and more perfect, and instead of being a, you know, in a rude and rough state, which isn't u- useful for anybody, after it becomes refined, it becomes useful. It can be part of the spiritual building. It can be, it can form the foundation for your own, you know, sp- um, spiritual superstructure that comes later. But you know, I thought it was interesting when you talked about how you know, knowledge and wisdom are separate. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, you have to learn in order to become wise, but knowledge doesn't equal wisdom. I mean, my grandmother always had a saying that. You know, it is knowledge to know that a tomato is a fruit, but it's wise not to put it in a fruit salad. And even, you know, contemplative practice can be reading and writing, you know, reading your favorite 
poetry, writing, journaling. I mean, all of that is contemplative practices that help you take the knowledge and distill it into wisdom. It's almost like the alchemical process of taking a root or a substance and through the different stages and processes you distill it into, you know, the philosopher's stone. Which is DMT. <laughs> <laughs> say nothing else the rest of the episode. Like that that's the only thing you say this whole episode. So there's some there's some work that has to happen, right? I mean you can't just sit in a forest and do nothing. There's a there's a process. The, the contemplation is something. It's it's not just nothing. You know, it's not, that's stupid to say, but there's something going on there that's that's transforming this knowledge into something eternal and applicable. Um, and it's funny to me that whenever sometimes if I'm, I'm contemplating something, and whenever whatever it is, whenever that thing finally manifests as a concept or a thought and it's clear to me and I can express it and touch it. It's so obvious. It's like, well, duh, but it wasn't easy and it wasn't obvious before, but once you see it, it's, it's super obvious and super simple. And that's exciting to me when that happens, because generally I think that that is probably correct or truth. Um, because it should be simple. It's not this complicated thing that we're having to decipher and, and, and do all this labor for our whole lives. A lot of times the, the wisdom is the simple, simple thing. And it's just that we have so much garbage as fallible creatures piled on top of us culturally. We're indoctrinated to ideas and things like that. And if you can sometimes retreat within yourself to examine something, that that simple thing squeaks out, and that's the thing that we should latch onto. Yeah, I mean, I really like that. You know, sometimes maybe knowledge clears away the the muck that clouds our true being. So maybe you know, knowledge is the bleach for the soul. <laughs> but you know, and, and you know, you talk about there's times where maybe you struggle with something, and then you look at it later, like, oh, that that makes sense, or that was easy, or why did I ever think anything differently? And I think that is the work. I mean, knowledge, you know, as you read philosophy or, you know, poetry, or you get into a contemplative practice such as meditation, it is applying, like, it is the practical application of knowledge to yourself. Right, knowledge is the tool. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, what you, you mentioned some some meditations and things like that earlier, but, and you said writing can be contemplative. So what are some contemplative practices? Like what, I mean, there's obviously a bazillion pathways that it can take, but ultimately they're all doing the same thing, right? There's that, that, that churning, there's that conversion that's happening. So do we just simply need to release ourselves? Do we need to occupy ourselves? What exactly is a contemplative practice? It's going within yourself. And so again, depending on the contemplative practice, I mean, there's a whole myriad that we've already discussed. And some of those are better for different aspects of your own being, your own development. I mean, maybe, you know, just reading, um, reading and learning, you know, philosophy and religion and different esoteric topics, you know, that builds your base knowledge. And, you know, one time I had a uh, teacher say that, you know, your esoteric knowledge, it almost builds like a computer program running in the background. That you don't know it's there, you don't think it's helpful, but it is running in the background and helping to formulate your future practices and even your everyday life. Because, you know, after all, knowledge, if you learn, you know, all the sephirot for the tree of life, you learn Hebrew, you, you know, learn all the alchemical symbolism on its own, that's absolutely useless, unless you just want to sound smart. But, uh, and, but the practical application of that is the work that goes on behind the scenes within your own psyche. You know, for example, on the tree of life, the different sephirot act as energy switches. So, you know, you can look at, 
you know, Malkuth and, you know, look at its symbolism. And when you start maybe or contemplating that, meditating on that, and you apply those to your life, well, then that's actual work. That's actually progress, personal progress. In addition to the Sephirot on the Tree of Life, you also have the pathways to connect the Sephirot. And so, well, the Sephirot might be the energy switches, the pathways or the circuitry that connect them. And, you know, in our spiritual being, you know, you start at Malkuth and you work all the way up to Kether, which is, you know, the, which is the crown or the divine being, the divine essence. And so that's the inner work, but that also mirrors the external world where you have the divine energy of God that manifests itself in the world and has to flow down. And even in the blue lodge, that's represented by, you know, the opening and closing of the lodge where the worshipful master doesn't order the lodge open or closed, he has to use the, the wardens to assist him in that endeavor. Something that's interesting that I hadn't thought about until you were just talking about this, that how in Hinduism, it's not till the second half of your life, in that first quarter where you go off in the woods, that's whenever you begin your your practice and your, your studies is after you've had a family and you've established yourself. I thought it was interesting because traditionally it was the same way. You didn't begin studying Kabbalah until you were established and you were you were an older man. So you got to have the knowledge, right? The knowledge, the tool set to do any of the work. Yeah, you've got to have experience from life to put the things that you're learning into context. Yeah, and that makes sense because if you had, let's just say you had no tools, you had no knowledge, right? And as a young child or, or an idiot or whatever, you walk off into the woods with absolutely nothing and bam, you're blasted all this wisdom. You're not going to know what to do with it. You won't, you won't even know what it is because there's no context. There's no tools. There's no application. And there's also no discernment. Yeah. So you're more likely to, to absorb things and apply them whenever they may not necessarily be something that's going to be fruitful for you. I think one of the reasons that you're supposed to be an adult as well is your position in society and then your own journey of life where, you know, if you think about it as a youth or even as, you know, a young man, you're still controlled by societal expectations. But when you enter the part where you go into the woods to study and learn, you have to leave the societal expectations to the side in many ways because the journey that you take might be very different than the journey that your parents wanted you to take or maybe the journey that you thought as a youth that you would undertake. But you've discovered that path from all the trials, tribulations, and experiences that you've had up until that point. And also, you're stable enough to do it. I mean, you've fulfilled your uh, familial duties, you've had your education, hopefully you've made a little bit of you know money to sustain yourself and your family while you're, while you're off in the forest learning yoga. Well, and so you have this wisdom now, and yeah, it makes sense. You have to have a certain maturity to be a good steward of it. I think that if you're given or this wisdom is revealed to you, it's implied, to me at least, that you're going to try and share that or at least apply it in your life so that other people can see the manifestation of it. Not for like not for showing off, but just that's your responsibility, right? Or else what good is it? Right. It goes back to the shamanic path. That it does no good to go off and and learn these things and refine your ash life. You're not going to bring that information back and disseminate it among those who need it. Yeah. And that brings up another thing. You know, is wisdom, is it ever present and we just don't see it and it's revealed to us and so it's always universally there? Or is it something personal that we conjure? Does that make sense? Like, is it is it something that... It does, because, like, there was a... Uh, there's, like, the pre-Socratic notion of truth called Aletheia. The idea was that true or Aletheia wasn't the truth itself. It was the act and the moment of discovery of the truth. So I think maybe that could be applied to the same thing with wisdom. Well, I guess wisdom and truth are interchangeable. Are they? Maybe. I mean, that's really interesting because, <laughs> you know, you may not 
But yeah, I guess they are, because just because something is true doesn't mean you like it, right? It's it's possible to have some wisdom or to, um, you know, understand something that, that you don't like. And so it probably changes you. And I think that's the point of it. That's, that's why you need those, those virtues to guide you, because you need some impartiality. Yeah, and wisdom... Wisdom would just be truth understood and integrated. Yeah, you know, wisdom, I'm sorry. Yeah, wisdom is the integration of truth. And sometimes what we understand to be true changes and deepens as you go out through life. So what I might have thought was truth when I was 18 is very maybe very different than what I think now. I mean, you have the divine truth, the unchanging truth, of the creator of the universe, the divine energy, and that's unchanging. But what we know is truth is only what we can glimpse. And so, you know, as we deepen our own knowledge of the world, society, ourselves, our glimpse, our field of vision widens. And so, therefore, you know, our wisdom widens and deepens, hopefully, throughout the process. So, just because you didn't understand it at the time, when you were 16 or, or whatever, it, it doesn't mean that it wasn't true then. It was true for you then, even though it may not be the same now. Yeah, maybe what I thought was true, but my understanding has deepened. You know, for example, I might have thought that, you know, something in politics or um, social relations is true. And that might be true, but maybe now I understand the reasoning behind it, some of the background story and information. So now I have a better understanding of it. And maybe what I would have, you know, stood up on a soapbox and screamed to the masses has changed now because I understand more about it and deeper. But, you know, maybe that, that grain was true and I had my whole wisdom and world view built around it, but now that's expanded, so... Instead of looking at one grain, you know, there's more sand on the beach. Yeah, and that's where prudence comes into play, right? Absolutely. I have beliefs, but uh, all beliefs are subject to change without notice. I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, contemplative practices, then, um, you know, they can be a way to to uncover truth, right? To To understand what the subtext is of your knowledge and masonry in general i think is a fantastic framework and it just begs for contemplation and contemplative practice to come into the mix with it uh, a lot of lodges do it in their in their blue lodge they they have contemplative moments they have um, different things within their before they open and after they close kind of deal. So here in the Guthrie Valley of the Scottish Rite, we've got the Academy of Reflection, which focuses pretty much wholly on contemplative practice. And Jason, Matt, you guys are both charter members of that thing, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, the Academy of Reflection uh, is a group that really encapsulates a lot of contemplative practices and puts them within, you know, the Scottish Rite and somewhat the Blue Lodge context. And just as we said, there's lots of different contemplative practices. Uh, One of the great things about the Academy of Reflection is that it incorporates many of those. I mean, there's a curriculum course that has different forms of meditation, contemplative practices, such as active writing, obviously meditation, um, visualizations, and, you know, focusing on different aspects of the ritual and you know, that really coalesces the, at least for the Scottish Rite, some of the teachings where, you know, there's lots of different esoteric systems, you know, such as, you know, the BOTA, uh, FLO, that, you know, have coursework, but the Academy Reflection, I think, is unique and of great value because it does center it within the Masonic experience. What kind of value does it bring? What does it, what does it help you guys with? as far as Scottish Rite understanding goes, or even personal wisdom? Well, for me, I'm undergoing some of the uh, coursework. And again, I've I've been a part of the BOTA, BOTA and FLO before. And, 
you know, that's its own esoteric system, its own system of, you know, magic, if you will, where with the AOR that's centered within the Masonic system, you know, one of the great things, one of the initial practices was just focusing on, you know, exertive ritual of your choosing, something that was meaningful for you. Could be from the Blue Lodge, could be from Scottish Rite. And just focusing on that snippet of ritual could be a word, could be a symbol, and, you know, reflecting on what that means to you and applying it for you. You know, one of the uh, kind of where we got our name as well, you know, one of the portions of the ritual that I focus on was the, you know, whence came you and withered traveling because, you know, where have I come from? Where do I want to go? And, you know, when you start really reflecting on that sort of thing, you know, obviously think about your past, but, you know, maybe mistakes I've made, how I've tried to rectify those, how I'm going to incorporate the teachings of the Masonic system actually in my life. And, you know, where do I want to go? Where, where is the ultimate goal? Something else that's really cool about the Academy of Reflection is that once a year we have a, a meditation retreat where we meet here, but we observe silence throughout the majority of the weekend. We have uh, group meditation sessions, but we also have portions of, of the weekend where you go off on your own and practice whatever your your uh, practice may be. For me, it serves as, as a really good reset. And it's really nice to have something like that within the context of masonry. Well, one of the things about the retreats is, you know, we do it here at the uh, Scottish Rite Temple, which you can ask for a better uh, venue to have a Masonic contemplative retreat because the Guthrie Temple is just replete with Masonic symbolism everywhere. Stained glass windows, inlays in the tile, in the woodwork. And, you know, during the silent portion, it's just the, you know, reflect on, you know, the different working tools that are uh, present in our temple and, you know, how do you apply those? And also, you know, just being silent was a very interesting experience as well because, you know, got, like for Matt that I've known for what, eight years now and, you know, every time we see each other, we're talkative as much as Matt will talk. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes sometimes we just stare at each other um, <laughs> but you know not to sound too new age new age or hippie but when you peel away the social construct of just talking but just being but still being present with each other and you know just sharing each other's presence or energy if you will is unique because you know within society how often do we get a chance or even in lodge to be around other people and our brothers without having to talk to project our thoughts feelings and emotions through voice but to just be present and don't have any of that you know spackling of talking well, yeah, and it's funny, you know, you apply those labels like you have to qualify it, but man, that's the point of being a person. <laughs> that's the only thing that we're here for is to experience another person. And, you know, we've talked about it before. And if you can truly experience another person, that mystical thing between the tie, that's God. That's the divine. That's the spark in us and around us. You don't have to qualify that. That's the most that's the most sought after treasure you could ever find. Well, and you know, you always hear the term mystic tie in masonry. And that you know, that that is, you know, the tie that bonds us as well is the brotherhood ties, the divine essence that we have uncovered between us. Reminds me of the Sturgill Simpson song, the line from uh, one of his songs. But I swear that God is there every time I look into the eyes of my best friend. Yes. That's it, man. That's it. That's the thing. And, you know, it's funny that, myself included, but people are uncomfortable with that because it is so powerful. It's, it's truth. It's absolute, right? It doesn't change. And as a society, we, in our culture anyway, we're conditioned against that, that it's awkward, right? Awkward silence. Everybody's uncomfortable when it's quiet. That's because something is there, and 
I don't know if a lot of people don't want to address it or they're scared of it or I don't know, but we seem to do an awful lot to cover it up and to block it. And it's so powerful. Well, and I think part of that goes to in order to have that divine energy and connection or even just be silent, you know, that takes away the I and the ego. You're just present. And that when you're when you're just present with each other and you take away, you know, conversation, bravado and whatnot, that there's no longer an I or a you and a me. There's we. We're together. And as you were saying, our culture, that's very different than some of the Eastern religions. I mean, because sometimes when you look at Hinduism and Buddhism and even Taoism, you know, it's very hard for Western mind Western minds to wrap around some of those concepts because from a young age, we're just drilled into there's there's I, there's I, there's I, there's I, there's you, 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 and there's a division between us. But when you truly come together and you experience each other's true being and essence, there is no you, there is no me, there is we, and we're all part of this divine creation. And we have our, you know, our energies are, you know, maybe separate from it, but it's all part of it as well. Uh, you know, there's a, there's an interesting story um, from Hinduism. And I, I can't remember the uh, teacher who said it, but there's a saying that, a student uh, was late to a, a, a meeting with his guru. And, you know, in the Hindu tradition, you know, the guru means teacher, but it doesn't mean teacher like we think of in the West. You know, we think of a teacher as a facilitator of knowledge, somebody who actually, you know, provides facts and historical texts and whatnot. In India, guru is the manifestation of truth. That's it. There is no guru. The guru is truth. So in Hinduism, you know, the student be- embodies the guru and thus becomes a guru himself, that he becomes truth. And, you know, in Taoism, you know, Wu Wei, it just it flows through him effortlessly. So anyway, in, this, in the story, the student is late for a meeting with the guru. And uh, when the student walks in, the guru is a little bit upset with him and says, you know, where were you? He's like, well, the river was flooded. I couldn't get across it safely, and uh, but I'm very sorry I couldn't call. And then the guru said, well, did the water go down? And the, and the student says, no, the, the water is very high. So kind of confused, the guru says, well, how did you get here? And the student says, well, I, I walked on the water. And kind of befuddled, the teacher says, well, how, how did you walk across the water? I mean... You know, did you have a raft or anything? He said, no, uh, I envisioned you. And I said to myself, guru, guru, guru. And I walked across the water. So the teacher says, well, I must be something special because he thought of me, was able to walk on water. So I'm going to go walk on water. So of course the guru comes up to the edge of the water and starts saying, I, 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 and he sinks. <laughs> so you know, while the student was walking across the water, he was thinking guru, 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 which is the manifestation of truth. True truth that's boundless, that is without form, shape, or individuality. As soon as the guru walked up there, he thought, I, 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 ego, and sunk to the bottom. I'm full of stories, boys. <laughs> <laughs> we should get a little, like, a, a three-second soundbite song and a transition to story time. <laughs> Jason's story time. <laughs> Cohen's with Jason. <laughs> this is my new podcast. So I guess in the Masonic context, you could think of you know the the divine truth, essence, being, being you know the divine light, the divine you know the Masonic light that we're all seeking, that unites us, that is both within us, that we're supposed to reflect out you know to the lodge, to the world at large as well. Yeah, man, and that's wisdom, right? Walking on water because. He understood it purely. Like, you know, he embodied it. He wasn't remembering a definition. He wasn't imagining a paragraph from a book. It was a real thing deep, deep down inside, right? And so the, the AOR, the Academy of Reflection, that's really special. It's really special. And it's pretty unique. 
I think, are, are we the only one? There's one in Orange County, right, that just got chartered. Yeah. And But that's it, right? Yeah, we're the chartering body. Like, yeah. we're the first one. We're the mother group, yeah. I guess. Man, it is so special. But there's there's also contemplative um, practices or, or things in, in Blue Lodge, like in our lodge, in Veritas Lodge. Um, you know, we have a, a contemplative moment. We have some things uh, before our opening and after our closing um, that are that are pretty special, and they serve the same purpose. They, for me, they really knock away all the exterior exterior and unite us um, on a deep level, like a spiritual subatomic level. You know, in the lodge, it's a sacred space that. You know, when we have these openings and closings, why? Well, I mean, from a ritual magic standpoint, opening and closing the lodge is, you know, cleansing the space and bringing in the divine energy into that that space. So for Veritas, you know, before any member goes in, one of the members will actually, you know, bless the space, light the incense, we try to keep electric lighting to an absolute minimum to light candles. And then, you know, we, we just do a standard opening uh, per Oklahoma ritual. So there's nothing odd or out of place there. But, you know, as we were saying, you know, when the Worshipful Master opens the lodge, you know, he is representing Solomon. And the divine energy and will flows from him out throughout the lodge and so now you have this charged energetic space and you know for us after the opening we just take five or six minutes for contemplative time we might have a reading we might have music we might have both it might just involve just being there to just silently sit and enjoy and absorb that energy that has been created by the members of the lodge so when that energy, our own you know, personal energy, condenses, it's, it creates a very powerful energy, very powerful space that then lends itself to you know, the education programs that we put on the lodge because it helps set the egregor for the body, for the group. And whenever we go to education time, you know, we've sort of cleansed ourselves from you know, the outer world and we're in a better place to receive, you know, whatever teaching uh, or education is present that night. I think you hit on something really important a few seconds ago where you were talking about you actually referred to or likened the ritual to ritual magic, which I think it really is. Opening and closing a lodge, we call it ritual and that's what it is. It's actual magic ritual. The whole point, like you said, is to clear the space, get us in the right mindset. That's the whole point of magical ritual. But I think we've lost the context of the meaning of the word ritual, and ritual more or less has become uh, a, a mundane habit that we've lost the, the true meaning of the sense of the word ritual, because that's exactly what we're doing. We are doing actual magical ritual. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, as soon as you say magic, they kind of freak out and, you know, what are these guys talking about? But, you know, ritual and ritual magic that's been present throughout humanity's, you know, religions and spiritual practices since time immemorial. And I, maybe that just goes back to what we we're talking about in the, in the Western mindset that there's I, there's you, there's me. And we kind of push away the concept of, you know, energy as being, well, that's new agey, that's hippie. But really, I mean, look at any, you know, ritual, uh, whether, you know, it's a Catholic rite or, you know, Protestant, you know, there's baptism, communion, those are all ritual magic. I mean, it is the, the transmutation of energy from the divine into the material world that we reside in. And that's what it is. Absolutely. And you don't have to, if, if you get scared off by some of the, the woo-woo con- connotations with that, it, it works on a psychological level. That's, that's another way of looking at magic. It's it's not a you don't have to look at it as some external force. It's you're you're having an impact psychologically on yourself internally. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, people they get a little iffy with the word magic, but you can say magical, no big deal. 
and it is magic, man. It's it's you can't explain it. You can only feel it. And if there were no magic involved in it, we would have stopped doing these rituals a long time ago. There's a reason they're there. There's something that's supposed to manifest. This is the the tool, right? This is the the way we put ourselves in a place to observe that or or be a participant in that. And that's the danger in treating it as a, a mundane habit or thing that we have to go through before we can get into the main part of the meeting is that we lose any power and significance from that action and that sets up the rest of the meeting. Well, and I think that even goes back, you know, circling the wagons again back to truth and degrees of truth because there's a lot of people who understand the importance of ritual, that the ritual is you can't change it, you have to do it this way. But expanding, you know, your wisdom, what you understand, why? That's a simple question. Why can't you change it? Why do we do this? I mean, I remember I hadn't been a uh, Mason very long, and one of the older guys in our lodge said that if our wives ever saw a lodge meeting, she'd think we were crazy, that we're gone two or three times a month to walk circles in a room and bang gavels and say a few words. Well, why? Why do we do that? Again, it's it has a purpose, a meaning behind that. And, you know, that goes into the intention. You know, as Matt was saying, it sets up the tone of the meaning. You know, what is your intention? Why are you there? I mean, are you simply there not to go off on, you know, a tangent that this horse has been beat to death so many times, but why are you there? Are you there to simply have a meeting in the books, read the minutes, pay some bills, or are you there for a truly spiritual transformational experience. Why are you there? What is your purpose? One of the things I always tell my uh, inner apprentices that I teach their catechism to is always remember what brought you to the door of the preparation room. Why did you petition? What were you looking for? And I think we'd be hard pressed to find anybody that was looking for just you know, a subpar or just thrown together meeting just to have something in the books. I mean, there's a reason that we came and something that we were looking for. Yeah, and at the very minimum, at the very minimum, it's to uh, meet some nice people and have a good time with them. Well, that's like a very broad surface thing, and, and maybe you may not even realize it, but what you're really doing by wanting to be with other people is you're wanting to experience that connection. That connection, that space between, when you can see another person for real, that also gives you a very good lens to see yourself. And that's the point. That's the point of masonry. That's why we're here, right? Absolutely. That's the point, man. That's the knowledge, the wisdom, the truth, all of it, all one big ball of wax is to know yourself as you were created, to get rid of all the junk, all the garbage, all the the stupid things that we get caught up on and just the essence of what it is to be a person. Well, you know, there, there's a saying that, you know, you, you if you want to know what you are like as a person, Look at your three best friends, closest friends. So that's a good reflection on you. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> but I mean, kidding, I mean, kidding, th- but think about the you know aspirational on that. Think think about the three best brothers that you know. I mean, is that maybe what you're aspiring to be? Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe you don't you don't realize that exactly. Because yeah, of course you can have uh, you know mentors and, and people that you want to model, but you don't really want to become like that person I mean you kind of do but what you really want is is their understanding you want their insight you want their level of wisdom so really you're after the wisdom I hope what I was picturing the Highlander in the quickening (laughs) (laughs) gotcha in the last part of the charge you know it says wisdom dwells in contemplation there we must seek her wisdom is a her and i mean we all know about sophia right tell us about sophia jason well i mean sophia is the 
archetypal divine motherhood or wisdom and you know there's there's that embodiment in numerous traditions and you know there's some traditions that you know Sophia is the divine motherhood who had to fall from the divine to come into the material world and so by being a philosopher you know Philo a lover Sophia of you know Sophia of knowledge lover of knowledge you know we are through our knowledge and trying to understand, we are trying to reconnect with Sophia, with the divine wisdom and knowledge, the motherhood figure. And Wilmshurst even says that that's one interpretation of the term widow's son. That, you know, widow's son in the Bible says that, you know, Hiram was the son of a widow. But also, you know, Sophia is the divine motherhood, but you know, were her children, but she's a widow. And so by trying to reconnect with her and her essence, we are the widow's son. You know, if, if you reject that path, you can, and certainly we see people that do that, but a true philosopher is somebody trying to reconnect with that path. So again, Sophia and Masonry, hopefully we're all on, you know, the path seeking Masonic light, light knowledge. So that's, you know, where we're, we're headed hopefully one of the things that in the pursuit of wisdom because you can't you can't set out seeking to acquire wisdom you can't just say i'm gonna go get me some wisdom it doesn't work that way right i think everybody multiple times needs to sit down with themselves and just brutally to the core be honest what do you want like as a mason, as a man, as someone who is perfecting themselves or polishing themselves, what do you want? Well, my gut response is always just to know. Now, if you press me on to know what, that's a whole other matter. But just my gut reaction and, and my personally, where I mean, I've always gone personal. with that is just to know. From a Jungian perspective, you know, the goal is individuation, which is, you know, going within our psyche. But really, you know, on another level, it's it's reconnecting with divine, the divine being, the divine essence of living. So, you know, I think a lot of us maybe have feelings uh, there's something incomplete. So maybe we come to masonry because we have something that's incomplete in our life. So we're looking for wholeness or fulfillment. But, you know, through that path, you know, we begin to reintegrate with our true self. And then once you reintegrate with your true self, discover yourself, then, you know, you start reconnecting with the greater divine energy and essence, creator, architect that exists. You know, when you an- when you answer that question, what do you want? I, I think that's the same reason you joined probably hopefully and it it all leads back to the wisdom you want to know right Matt I mean you want to know what you want to know God you want to know yourself you want to know what is real and obviously those things are different from what you understood and perceived before you joined and before you started this pursuit and so I like, and I don't like, I love our charge. I love it. It's so simple and it's so powerful that wisdom dwells, it lives, and it's waiting for you in contemplation. And we must seek her. Thanks for listening to the show. If you have any show ideas, questions, or comments, you can send those to podcast at the laudablepursuit.com. You can also keep up with us on our Facebook page and on Instagram. We publish articles one to two times a week on our website, thelaudablepursuit.com. Also, our website is home to our gallery of light. Here we post inspirational or striking quotes and images that we find applicable to masonry. As always, we welcome submissions of any kind, art, music, poetry, or prose. Those submissions can be sent via email to the editor at editor at thelaudablepursuit.com. Thanks for listening.